welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Pim Elsoff, who is a developer at Procurious based in the Netherlands. Pim Elsoff, welcome to Maintainable. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. First off, what do you believe are common traits of a well-maintained code base? I think a well-maintained code base just radiates that business language. That to me, that's the most important aspect, that the code actually reflects what the software is all about. In terms of how the business is organized or how it runs and communicates within itself or with its customers? Yeah, how, how the business actually talks to each other. In terms of domain-driven design, that's called ubiquitous language, the language that the people who are actually doing like the groundwork, how they talk to each other, that should radiate from the code. Do you often find that there's actually like scenarios where one department refers to something in one way, but another department refers it in a completely different way? And do you feel like software should try to accommodate both of those perspectives or do you think they should actually be trying to work to clear up the confusion between those two different parts of the organization? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And like, we've only just gotten started and I'm already going to do it. It <laughs> depends. <laughs> when two separate departments, they both have a name for a concept and it means something completely differently, or when they both have different names for similar concept, it still means that in your code, it should both get a separate space because the usage of it is what really matters. We get so hung up on naming things that we sometimes forget to look at how things behave in a certain context. And that's what really matters when we look at a piece of code, like what does it do? That matters almost more than what it's named because from the behavior of the code, we can determine its role in the certain context, in the certain part of the system. And of course, that should reflect what it's like in the actual business. How does your team define and talk about technical debt amongst yourselves? Yeah, that's also very important and also something that's been changing a little bit over the years. I have a very strong personal opinion on this that might not be the most rational one. I don't hear it that much, but I really like to separate technical debt from technical hedge fund liabilities. (laughs) Whereas in my opinion, technical debt is a choice. There is a lot of technical debt happening that people don't actually choose. So when people mention technical debt out of the blue, you don't really know which one of the two they, they actually mean. Is it a choice? Did you purposefully choose to corners here or to make choices that you knew you were going to have to pay interest on or even have to pay back in full down the road? Or did you just make bad decisions? Did you not explore enough? Did you perhaps not have the technical capacity to understand what you were doing as you got into this? And as a result of that, did you end up with a mess? In my opinion, usually people conflate the two. And as a result of that, they don't really have the tools, the know-how to prevent getting out of it. In my team, we talk a lot about choices. We talk a lot about how we're going to approach certain things. And we also try to discuss as much as we can when we made the wrong choices. Usually we more end up with the hedge funds than we do with the debt and that's, you know, I, I can kind of be blamed for that as the senior developer of the team. It's a, a lot of learning. What are some ways that you've seen technical debt that maybe wasn't necessarily a choice impact the teams that you've been a part of versus maybe bad decisions? 
So one of the things that also ties in nicely to the domain-driven design stuff, which is like my favorite subject to talk about, is correctly choosing those boundaries that you kind of mentioned earlier. Like if you have these two different departments, they both from different perspectives work on the same thing or from the same perspective work on different things. That means that if we want to reflect that in code, that means we're going to have duplicate naming, we're going to have duplicate implementations or not. There is maybe something that we can share or maybe something that we can't share. Well, in the past, I've made a couple of those modules uh, from, from the platform that we work with at Procurios. And almost every time, like I can't think of a single time where at the start of the project, I chose the boundaries correctly. I've never successfully chosen at the start how to separate the concerns properly, like on a modular scale, not necessarily in a code by code scale. So I always kind of end up at a certain point, having this doomed realization, this sinking feeling that, oh, oh, I did it again. I made the wrong choice again. So as a result of that, I've actually had to spend more time undoing those boundaries and choices and then maybe redoing them later or not even doing them at all, more than I've actually had profit from early on separating and properly trying to, uh, to put things in boundaries. What are some common symptoms that your engineering team might start exhibiting if there's been an accumulation of too much technical debt. What are some common things that you've, you've witnessed over the years? Yeah, the most most common thing that I've witnessed is having to touch code somewhere and then getting this chain reaction of having to touch code in other places, sometimes places that you wouldn't even guess that you would need to touch. And that's even from a recent project. So we've had a ton of changes before because we, we have a, v- a very old system that we're working on. We've, we've not had like separate projects where we can just kind of start again every, every now and then. Now we've had the same project going for 17 or 18 years now. And I've, I've only been part of the latter half of that. So we've had, even from various paradigms over the years that we've shifted from to first doing not OOP at all and then doing OOP wrong and then doing OOP wrong a couple more times and then kind of like hopefully doing it right now, we've had the same problem manifest the same symptoms, but even over different paradigms that we just make changes somewhere and then you don't know how it's going to ricochet across your code base. Are there processes that you're team has experimented with implementing over the years that keep on top of those types of issues? Or is it kind of a whack-a-mole or as things pop up type of problem firefighting? Yeah, most of our efforts have aimed at preventing it from happening rather than fixing it when it when it does occur. We've tried to move our understanding as early as possible, getting all these, these difficult subjects as early as possible, uh, open and out and discussing them with our with our clients present. So one of the things that, that has happened in the most recent years is our clients are actually with us in the office now when we're working for them. That means that we have them and a whiteboard and some time and a lot of post-its available. We really like to do something called event storming. I don't know if your if your audience knows about event storming. If they don't, you absolutely have to Google it. It's a wonderful technique to get a lot of knowledge crunching before you hit the keyboard. Uh, you've spoken a bit about your own company's code base over the years. Could you provide some background on your platform? In what ways is your project really legacy? You mentioned it's been 17 years now. What's that kind of all baked into at this point? Yeah, so there's a lot of really cool things about our project. A lot of things that others would not necessarily find as cool as I do, but I like archaeology, so why not? So our project started 2004, and even some bits are older than that, but the oldest commit that I can still find is 2004. So that means that when we started, it was PHP 4, I think. Loading a class 
was actually a noticeable impact on page load times. So a lot of our earlier classes were five, 6,000 lines of code, of PHP code. So this it's all PHP, I forgot to mention that part. So we came from a flat file area with includes and went to do more OOP kind of stuff. And that means that we had all kinds of interesting shifts from global variables to poorly designed object-oriented kind of something. And we've now moved to a mostly modular using hexagonal architecture and all that kind of cool stuff that really helps us solve some of these boundary problems that I've mentioned before. Because we have like three and a half million lines of PHP code split over something like 600 modules. Most modules are are customer specific and modules vary from a couple of thousand lines of code to some some have like 80,000 lines of code. The modules are pretty manageable but they really do reflect our company culture. And that's something that we've really hit the wall with quite harshly a couple of years ago. This idea of Conway's law, where an organization can only write the software that communicates in the way that the organization itself communicates. That's been a very, very prevalent problem. For example, we have one of the more important, most used modules are kind of CRM module. That is the basis for a lot of the other modules to do their work. That module is just abused by all the other modules because we have this tendency in our firm that every team just gets left alone and does their their work for the whole week. And if you need something from the team, then you use the internal messaging system. But sometimes people just walk into the office and just you know knock on the door and walk in and ask stuff. And our code actually does the same thing. Most of the times our modules actually cooperate nicely and through the agreed upon channels through the proper ways, through services that neatly connect to each other and don't depend on concretions, they depend on abstracts. But every now and then you'll see a query that has to, for example, show a list of subscriptions. And of course, a subscription is tied to a certain customer and that customer has a name. So just for that one list of subscriptions, the query just joins the table of customer names, which comes from another module. And that kind of thing, it's it's old and it happens all over the place. And we have so many instances of these, these things happening, it would be completely unfeasible to fix them all. And moreover, we would have to probably fix the company culture first before we'd have to actually fix the code. In what camp do you find yourself most often? Camp, let's refactor this or camp, let's rewrite this? Oh, that's an absolutely lovely question. I'm a firm opponent of rewriting, a very, very firm opponent of rewriting. We've had a couple of big rewrites, uh, one of which is still kind of on my mind, even though I didn't participate in it myself. I don't think I've ever seen a rewrite go really well. The thing is that most rewrites actually end up changing the requirements compared to the old version. At least that's been that's been our experience, right? So if this is absolutely not the case for you, then ignore everything I'm saying. But in my experience, a rewrite never came with a change in requirements. And the problem is that when you do that, you actually don't really know what the target is that you're aiming for when you're doing your rewrite. Because you're not taking all the lessons from what you left and you're not you don't know yet all the lessons from where you're heading. So I'm a very, very big proponent of refactoring of putting into the code everything that you've learned while you were working with it. Code is like, I feel like a potter more than like an engineer. I feel like I'm, I'm really sculpting. I'm getting my hands dirty. I'm feeling what's going on. I'm talking to my customers. I'm understanding 
what this domain is all about. And everything that I've learned needs to go back into that code. I feel it in my stomach when the code is badly or not at all reflecting what it's all about. The rewrites that we've done in the past that I can talk to you more about if you, if you like, they've all missed that mark. They've all not taken all the lessons that we learned in the past and they've created new problems that we still needed to learn after launch. And do you think that when those scenarios, based on your experience, when we go through that rewrite, when they're working with other engineers and they're pushing for a rewrite and they're like, we can keep it the same way it is, or, or is it more of a, is some of the rationality you see people bring up, at least it's been in my experience, is like, hey, there's a bunch of stuff we're not using in here that we haven't had time to clean up anyway, so why don't we rewrite this and we'll not carry over the things we don't need. And then I, I share your perspective that I personally am not a big advocate of big rewrites because they're usually way more complicated than most people give them credit for. I don't know why people think they're going to replace something that took years to build in six months or a year or something, but it happens. And I think it's always an interesting thing how some of the justification I think the engineers might bring up as far as like, we can get rid of the old stuff that's not even being used, but we don't always know that. Yeah, and I mean, not to hate on the people who, who advocate the rewrites, of course, <laughs> because I, I lost one of the significant battles that we fought over whether to rewrite one of our modules or not. So it's been a couple of years ago, so it's not that fresh on my mind. But I kind of do agree with what you're saying. People have all these reasons why they want to justify this rewrite. But usually, if I'm if I'm completely honest, this is my own experience as well, not just from what I see from others, but what from I feel as well. Mostly people have their mind made up and then the arguments come. So I have to be very mindful towards others that even if I think their arguments might not be the most sensible ones, my own probably aren't the most sensible ones either. So I have to be uh, nice to them and nice to myself. What would you say has been your single biggest mistake that you've made as a developer? So it happened kind of before this rewrite. So I've been I've been at, at Pocuyos for seven years now. That's not even like half of the time of some of the other developers. We don't hire a lot of new people that often we have, but we have a very, very high retention rate. Well, it, 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 might, it could also signal that we're just a bunch of nasty people, but <laughs> I, like, I like to think we're nice. So when I got there, my first impression on opening this code that's mostly not really OOP and that's architecturally deficient in a lot of ways that doesn't really separate concerns that well. So for example, we had like these homemade implementation of active record that would just lead to models being thousands of lines of code and doing all kinds of stuff. So I kind of set out to fight this injustice that was done upon this code and to really impress upon others that there's a different way to structure code and to reason about code quality. So after two weeks of working there, I gave a, a lightning talk, like this five minute quick talk on how I structure my code and how I view code quality. And basically what I try to leave people with is, as a rule of thumb, a function shouldn't be more than seven lines of code. That's coming from a place that only had getters and functions of 50 lines of code. <laughs> so that was contentious. Yeah, everyone was saying, ah, that's, that's not possible. Well, I kind of got upset with that and I kind of did my best to show that is possible, just you know, look at what I'm doing. But it kind of set me off on this trajectory of fighting everyone. So for my very first year, I uh, had some successes with showing that it actually was possible to write better code, or at least what I thought was better code. And I had a good year. 
but I spent so much energy fighting everyone and being a generally unpleasant teammate that my next couple of years were actually pretty hard. It was, I mean, from the very start, it wasn't that pleasant for my teammates, but I was very productive. So they were kind of happy to have me, but I was not a nice person to be in a team with, not at all. And so after, I think it was three years that I was there, I actually had a public argument with someone and had to make an, a statement of apology just because I completely messed up. I burned someone alive in the public space and it was absolutely not friendly. It was absolutely not nice. It was a horrible move on my, on my end. I still feel this defensive part inside of me that also wants to blame the other guy. It's just a very, very unhealthy place that I came from and a very unhealthy behavior for a professional environment. And I mean, it came from a place of genuinely caring about code quality, but it also came with a lot of hubris about what that actually means and a lot of disrespect and disregard for the technical capacities of my coworkers. So while that was a very unpleasant moment for both the coworker that I treated unfairly and all my other coworkers that had to witness that, and uh, you now for myself as well, it was a very formative and very good learning experience for me. And I actually set out to learn a lot about teamwork and psychology and all that kind of stuff. It did set me on a much better path. I stopped arguing. I don't argue even on the internet anymore. I'm very firm in the camp of, uh, of show, don't tell now, not for my code, but also for myself. If I almost get into an argument with someone, I'll just say, okay, look, well, why don't you show me? And a little bit later, I'll show you. That's actually been a much better experience. People don't take me up on it very often, but when they do, it's always very pleasant. That's great. I came across a handful of talks that you've given at developer conferences. In one of the talks titled The Developer's Model for Talking to Managers, you touched on the importance of getting really efficient at speaking with management, stakeholders, and product owners. Why do you believe this is an important area for developers to focus building some expertise at? So I'll, I'll have two answers to that one. Uh, the first is like this, uh, like the thing that we as developers can actually uh, go out into the public with. And the second one will be a private answer for developers only that no one else can listen to. So the first answer I would give is, do you know the movie Office Space? Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, of course. So Office Space, for, the, for those who haven't seen the movie, is this typically 90s developer culture where developers work for this big bank and they just get treated like they're low-life scum and their boss just bosses them around and the developers have a generally really, really bad time. And what's very typical about that movie is that the developers see things going wrong. They're basically at the point where they don't even talk about it to management anymore and they're very much in a victim place. That's a harsh place to be because if you truly believe that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to change what's happening to you, oh, that's, that's just a very, very nasty place to be in. If you really believe that that's what it's like, then of course you're not going to be very happy in your job. Now, what's interesting comparing today's developer culture and basically our market compared to the 90s is that developers are very scarce now. Well, there's so much work to do. So instead of developers sticking with their job and feeling really bad for themselves, developers have turned to saying no. If your boss is mean to you, you just say no, and then you quit. Now, I think that's much better than just saying yes and messing up. But there's a downside to saying no, especially if you're not going to immediately quit. That's because your, your boss, your manager, your salespeople are trained to turn no 
into yes. So if you want to have an argument with your salesperson and you want to say no and he wants yes, he's going to get yes. Like I'm fortunate enough to have two salespeople who are genuinely really good people who have worked with me with all the difficult stuff that we've had uh, over the past years. But still, they are so good at turning no into yes that I remember conversations from years ago where they'd ask me something and I set out to say no. We talked for 10 minutes. I walk away and I think to myself, what did I just agree to? I mean, it happens to the best of the... We lack the tools and we lack the training. We lack the natural affinity to deal with these people in a manner that is well for us uh, when it comes to confrontations. We're just not going to win confrontations with them because that's their expertise and not ours. But our expertise is in problem solving. So instead of saying no, because it can't be done, what we can do is say yes to other things. So if they ask us, you know, hey, there's this customer and they want all this stuff to be done in five weeks, can we do that? Then you can say, well, we can have a conversation with them and see if we can cut down the list of features a little bit or see if there's like an easy solution to some of these features. So we can have some wiggle room. Maybe we can have a conversation with them about expanding the budget. Maybe you have some some other ideas or uh, what do you think? But this this five-week stuff, that's, that's, not a, that's not possible. That's not going to happen. But we don't say it. We just kind of leave that in the background because the moment we start to argue about whether that can be done or not, we're back in no land. So that's the public answer. The private answer is, have you ever had a negotiation for your compensation? Being the owner of my business, it's been a long time since I've had to have a conversation like that. The few developers that do come to me with that, that is always an interesting conversation. So the ability to properly negotiate for what your time is worth, that's a wonderful skill to have. And uh, you get it as a bonus, so why not? In, in your talk, you acted out a number of, I think, some really great scenarios of how developers and product owners or managers might interact with each other and how people transition between the adult ego state and the child state during typical software development problems, i.e. maybe a project that you previously estimated was going to take five sprints, maybe is now looking like it's going to take twice that. Could you explain or expand on that concept a little bit further for those who haven't yet had a chance to watch that? Yeah, it's it by far favoritest talk to give. I absolutely love showing that one on stage. Sadly, it's not as popular as some of my more technical talks, but that's okay. So when it comes to these conversations, sometimes these conversations just don't go as well as you would like. Usually when a conversation doesn't go as well, it means that either one or both of the participants are experiencing something that isn't what we would normally expect from these people. Like if they're, you know, normally walking around having a good day, they wouldn't respond like that. They only respond in certain ways when they're under pressure or when they're not feeling so well or when they're unhappy or when there's something's going on. Any, any kind of stressor can cause these responses. But we see at work, of course, uh, most often these stressors in the form of conflicts. Conflicts over interpretations of requirements, what exactly is or is not technical debt, on whether we should use tabs or spaces, or any of these stressors that cause people to respond in a different manner. Now, all these conversations, they've been analyzed by, I th- oh, I forgot his name. I think it was Eric Byrne in somewhere in the 50s. And he wrote a really good book about it called Games People Play. 
In that book, he basically describes two models of looking at how these conversations go. Uh, maybe he describes some more models, but there's two models at least that I uh, took from this one. And the one that you were just mentioning, this ego state model talks about from the perspective of relations between adults, between parents and children on how these conversations are going, like what's, what's going on here, what's happening. So for example, one way that these conversations can go is I will come to you and I will say, hey, can we do this in, uh, in a couple of weeks? And you will go, oh, oh here's you again. Oh, this, uh, can't you just figure this out for yourself? Oh, it's so annoying that you always come to me with these problems. When you act like that, I mean, it's probably due to certain kind of context. It's understandable, but we all kind of see that that's not a healthy response. But there's a way of actually figuring out what's going on here. From the way that you would respond in this in this example, I would say that you're coming from me from a judging parent side. And that kind of means that you're trying to push me down into an adapted child role. So that means that you want me to just conform and go away. Now, these conversations, uh, if you're interested in these, these kinds of models, there are really good YouTube videos about it and, and all kinds of, of other stuff. It's called transactional analysis. These conversations always have to resolve. A conversation on an unhealthy level always has to resolve. Someone has to go into the parent-child, the other has to go into the child state. And until that has happened, the conversation cannot end. Now, the healthy thing to say is to recognize this and pull yourself out. So if you were to respond to me like that, the healthy thing for me to say would be just, okay, and just walk away. But the unhealthy thing, of course, for me would to say is, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I mean, uh, are, are you okay? Are you like, and be really concerned about what's going on for you. So is there some guidance you can offer? Say, let's say there's an engineer who's working at a company. Their concerns about the long-term maintainability of their software are not being heard by management. What sort of advice might you give them on how they could start navigating those conversations with management? That's a very, very good question. A very important question, I think, because this happens to most companies all over the place. I think that there's not a single company out there where there's not an engineer who thinks, oh, everything is going to burn down, excrement is going to hit the fan, and all kinds of bad things are going to happen. If you signal something, if you see something's going on, then it's your responsibility to say something. Let's, let's get that out there first. If you see something, you say something. The moment you stop saying something, it means the company's already lost, or at least your job is kind of already lost. It means you've given up. It means you're, you've moved into apathy. So that's the last place that you want to end up. But of course, if you keep saying something and people don't respond to it, that's very unhealthy too. And it's very unrewarding for you to, you know, you, you, you take this, this, this public stance to say something and people just keep ignoring you or putting you down. So I would say that the way you deal with this is just look at it from a professional interaction. It is a professional interaction. It's not a friendly or conversational or whatever. It is a professional interaction. So the professional thing to do, in my opinion, is to mention it as often as you think makes sense. So don't open it up in every conversation, but keep mentioning it because that's your responsibility. You are paid to provide the correct information to management to make these kinds of decisions. And if you have the option to make this decision, then probably you should 
be a little bit more forceful. But if you don't have any kind of say in this decision, then you should keep it at that. You should keep it at the informational level. Now, there's a, a little model in, in that talk that you mentioned earlier as well that I like to call the sphere of influence model. It's not really a set model that a lot of people are, are really talking about or anything, but I kind of like to separate things into three categories. Things that I actively participate in decision-making in that are mostly my team. That is my sphere of influence where I can actually actively participate in decision-making, where I can passively participate in decision-making, where I offer information, where I'm sometimes consulted. And then there's this sphere of decisions that are being made without my knowledge or without my consultation or whatever, but that do affect me. Now, this usually, this engineer reporting on technical debt is either directly involved or indirectly involved in decision-making, which means either you have to convince the other decision-makers or you're just going to have to hope that the information is being used correctly. Now, if you have the option to convince your other decision-makers, then I suggest you get really good at talking, really work your arguments out, you know, read Cicero or uh, some other uh, of the Greek or Roman philosophers and really work on your argumentation skills, but also accept the arguments of others, listen to them, because if you want people to work with what you are saying, then you have to work with what they are saying. The four levels of listening, you know, listening just so that you can respond, listening so you can actually kind of parse what they're saying, listening to actually understand and listening to actually empathize. Unless you listen to empathize, people will never listen to empathize with you. So that's what I would say, if you are an active decision maker, Make sure you empathize with everyone else so that you invite empathy for you. If you're a passive decision maker and if you're just talking to management, then this is the situation I am most of the time. What I do is I give my information whenever asked, sometimes when it's not asked, and I write it down. And I see the decisions that are being made with the information that I provide. And then when it comes time to talk about my performance, then either I will have made a lot of bad decisions, provided a lot of bad information, and they still made good decisions or whatever, whatever stuff will have happened. And I will just discuss with my employer. This is all the information I provided. This is what you did with it. I'm either happy or I'm not happy. If I'm quite unhappy, then I will hold them responsible and I will expect better next time. And if they made a lot of good decisions, I'm really happy with them and everybody's happy. And usually that also means that I get rewarded quite handsomely. The upside of this approach is that I don't see my boss as my boss. He's my customer. And I'm looking for a mutual exchange of value. That's interesting. And thinking about maybe your performance reviews, and do you actually bring the information you've been provided that hasn't maybe been acted on into those conversations? Yeah, I lead my performance reviews. That's awesome. Probably a lot of the listeners are probably like, all right, I show up to a meeting and someone gives me some feedback from the team or something and give me some some suggestions of things I need to work on or where my strengths are, maybe some weaknesses to work on. But yeah, it's not been always been a scenario where I've seen a lot of developers being that kind of like be enough of their own advocate outside of maybe conversations about compensation. I feel like that's usually one place, but I feel like there needs to be probably more conversations about the other aspects of the role that like, you know, this is painful for me the way we've been working and I've been advocating for this and I do not feel like I'm being heard. How are we going to fix that so that I have a reason to want to continue working here a year from now? Yeah, I mean, and, and you're an employer, right? Yeah. So what, what would you prefer? How would you, uh, how would you prefer your uh, employees' performance reviews go if you're even doing performance reviews? Because I hear a lot of people aren't even doing them anymore and have different ways of, uh, of dealing with, these, uh, with the goal that performance reviews are, uh, are working towards. 
That's a great question. How we do things is we we do like 360 reviews primarily. With so it's mainly feedback from peers and from a few other managers, and occasionally we'll maybe introduce some customers into that process if they're working really closely with the customers, and then we kind of share what my understanding of a kind of a collective view of that and try to provide some of the raw feedback that's been provided. But I think from a performance perspective, you know, as a consulting company, we're like basically tracking our time against projects for clients. And so it's a matter of like, usually the metrics we can look at are related to how consistently billable are you, how you're hitting those types of goals and can be a little bit more tricky to get into the weeds of like, you've got these X things done under estimate or I don't go into that sort of thing. So I think from a certain level, I think I've, I've not really known how to approach performance reviews. And I think that probably speaks a little bit to just my own personal experience as a developer. Previous jobs that I had before I started my own company was no one ever gave me a performance review. I don't know what that's like. The last time I've been graded on anything was before I dropped out of high school. So I don't have a lot of familiarity with what that would even look like. I think if I were talking about like maybe with a salesperson that we had hired or something, I feel like I'd have a better understanding of like, are you performing to the goals we've talked about in terms of hitting some sales metrics? But on a developer level, I feel like that's been hard for me to wrap my head around how tangible that is and or how useful it might be, I think in some ways too, because it's just hasn't been something that's been on my radar. So just being open from my end there. No, but I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that you've never gone through this process. And, and I've heard that too, quite a lot, that a lot of developers don't actually work for a company with performance reviews. And I kind of understand from some perspectives, I do feel that sometimes, and this is my personal opinion, you could shoot me down for it, you know, hit, hit, hit me up on Twitter if you, uh, if you, if you hate me for it. I think we sometimes lose track that we are actually running a business and we do want to optimize our processes, you know, to make money. That's, that's what we're doing. I want to, I want my company to get filthy rich from me so I can get a little bit less filthy rich from them. They run all the risk. So I'm very happy to reap the rewards. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. I know that like, even just from like my own development team, just putting some scorecard metrics in place for something that we can talk about on a regular basis outside of the time that they're tracking and putting into the projects that they're working on and how much time we're potentially having to absorb because of whatever. Yeah. We all want to help each other succeed, right? That's why we're a team. Yeah, that's true. It can be refreshing to hear how I think some developers can think about how what their role is in helping a company make money versus worrying, I think, as an employer, like, oh, I don't want to push them too hard because because there's, there's a shortage of developers. And you're kind of like, where's this boundary line here of I want to make sure I'm getting enough out of them so that they feel fulfilled and they're being challenged and getting to learn new things and not getting in a rut with the projects that they're working on. But how do I also hold them accountable to their goals for helping us help our own bottom line? And, and so it's always like this weird thing, like how much do we talk about money as a, at an organizational level or not outside of like salaries? And, and we're pretty transparent here about how much money we're making on a week to week basis is with our client work. But there still is always like this weird, like maybe we're talking about the wrong thing and we need to think about some of the other aspects of helping them. I, I don't want to use money as like a carrot stick, I guess, in some ways. And it's always about all the other aspects of providing some autonomy and helping them hone in their craft and giving them opportunity and to explore, go outside of their comfort zone and, and grow from that. And that's always about, that's the thing I'm trying to offer, I think, more often than anything, at least the things I talk about with my um, developers in one-on-one -on -one conversations and such. But there is probably isn't enough conversations about just some of the baseline business stuff. Yeah, but it would also be really great if developers would take more 
Like, and this is kind of the, like the thread of my entire works, of all the talks I've done, of everything I've always done. The thread of it is what can you as a developer do? And one of the interesting things about our industry is that we're a little bit of a front runner when it comes to what are you actually investing as an employee? Because I'm not just investing my 40 hours a week time. I'm investing my energy. I'm investing my emotional state. I'm investing a lot of myself into this company. I bring a lot with it back home, even though I try really hard not to work at home. But I think about it because I really enjoy my job. I want to help the company succeed. So I can't help but 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 think about these things. So we're, we're not just looking at it from a time for compensation kind of relationship. We're really looking at it from a I'm giving it my all and I want something valuable in return for that. And that's why I'm so happy that I have this mutual exchange of value relationship with uh, with my employer. Even for me, it's much more than just the compensation. It's also all the other opportunities that I get that I'm very happy with. That's great. What sort of tips might you offer a developer that's never felt like they've been able to have a conversation? Maybe they're not anticipating that their manager is going to be the first one to bring it up. How might they start those types of conversations up if they do give a shit about the organization or the bottom line? So I would say that you can't change the way that you approach conversations just like that. That takes a lot of time and investment. So I would say if you notice that in your own career, if you notice that in your daily life, in your profession, and you want to do something about it, I would say you, you need to set a realistic time frame. Like it, it took me years to go from shouting at someone on an internal chat forum to maybe not shouting anymore at people on an internal chat forum. Now, that's a little bit exaggerated. It took me a couple of years to go from being not so nice to my coworkers to try and really be aware in the moment of the effect that I'm having on my team. And of course, I still make plenty of mistakes, but at least people can talk to me about it. And, and I hope I'm receptive enough to, to have these conversations. Now, there's a lot of things that you can study in this regard. For example, watch those uh, transactional analysis videos, see if they hit the spot for you, or maybe there's another model that fits better. There's a dozen different models on conversations and how you can make sure that you have the impact in a conversation that you'd like. And you're going to mess up a dozen times, a trillion times before you're actually going to have these conversations in a way that you like. So the very first step would be three months after a conversation, it hits you. Oh, I should have said this. And I'm, I'm sure uh, almost everyone has these conversations, like where you're, uh, you, you lay awake at night thinking, oh, I should have said this, I should have th- said that. So when you start to learn about these conversation models, uh, the Rose, Rose of Leary or Leary's Rose or something like that, it's another, another really good uh, conversation model. So when you, when you start to think back of your conversations, it's first it's going to take you weeks before it hits you what happened in a conversation given a certain model. And then it takes you two weeks, and then it takes you one week, and then it takes you a day, and then it takes you an hour, and then you have it in the moment. You in the moment realize what's going on. And the next time you don't only realize it, you can actually act upon that because that's what it's all working towards. And it might take you a year. It might take you two years, but you're going to get at that spot where you don't have to emotionally lash out and respond in the moment to what's happening. But you can just take a moment and say, you know what? I'll get back to you tomorrow. That's the best first step that you can already hope for. Someone comes up to you and wants to ask you a really difficult question or put you on the spot and you're just going to say, 
I'll talk to my team about it. That's great. Patience and practice on a lot of different aspects from a professional development perspective isn't just about learning how to be better about refactoring your code, but probably refactoring how you converse with your coworkers. What book do you find yourself recommending to software developers most often? The actual truth is that I most often recommend a book that is sadly not translated into English. I would absolutely love this book to be translated into English because it's a book about talking. It's called Verbal Meesterschap. So if there's any Dutchies out there listening to this podcast, Verbal Meesterschap by Remco Klaassen, that's the number one book that I recommend. And it's actually true. That's the book I recommend most often. Besides that, I'm just going to have to go with the blue book, the domain-driven design tackling complexity in the heart of software. Unfortunately, I've been collecting dust on our library bookshelf for too long, and I should probably show that to the junior developers that have joined us recently. Like, this is important. This was very important to our, our world. Yeah. And it's also a very interesting book to analyze from a conversational analysis kind of standpoint. And where can people learn more about your thoughts on software online? Well, they can Google my name on the YouTubes and find some of my talks. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, that's twitter.com slash P-E-L-S-H-O-F-F. Excellent. I really appreciate you joining us on this episode of Maintainable, Pam. Thank you very much for having me. It was great fun. Oh, 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 oh.